Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. Well, I started getting more serious about wrestling in fifth grade. I quit football. I started getting really serious in like seventh, eighth grade about wrestling. Um, and you know what? I don't I think I don't know if it was like a thing. I think it just like like I said, I'm obsessive. And so I just started working out every day. And then it was like, okay, I work out every day. It's like, and I didn't see any reason not to keep working out every day. I, I enjoyed working, <laughs> working out for the most part. So I just kept going. And then it was like, I don't know, at some point I realized it was it was highly abnormal that most people don't train every single day. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort it humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gents. This is your host, Ryan Warner. You're listening to Wrestling Changed My Life. My guest today is none other than the funky one, Ben Askren. This was recorded about two months ago. And if you don't know this man, this introduction's not going to help you. So let's get right to the interview. Fan of the week goes to Connor and Tanner. Their pops got them turned on to the show. They're listening, and we appreciate it, boys. Thank you very much. Last but not least, this episode is brought to you by Competitor Supreme, which is a Dan Gable movie from the 90s. When I was a kid, I watched this thing over and over and over. And I couldn't find it online. But now you can stream it on WrestlingChangeMyLife.com. Just go to WrestlingChangeMyLife.com and click on the tab Competitor Supreme and use the promo code GABLE, G-A-B-L-E, for a free rental. It's normally 2 bucks, but if you use the promo code GABLE, G-A-B-L-E, you'll get a free rental. Let's give it up for Ben, the funky one, Askren. Peace! Ben Askren, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You're well known in the wrestling fighting podcast crypto circuits, and I, I like thought <laughs> so many, so many circuits, so many disc golf. I haven't heard a lot about that lately. There Are you go. still gung ho about disc I golf? Yeah, I have, I have 15 holes on my property. I I intend to finish. I think I'll have 21 when I'm finished on uh, on my land here. And uh, yes, I'm. Very, I don't obviously have the time to go play in tournaments or anything actively, but I do uh, spend quite a bit of time out playing disc golf. Was there a time when you did tournaments? Oh, yeah. I took second at the Amateur Nationals. I took ninth at the Amateur Worlds twice. Uh, I had a 996 rating and uh, it was at my high at my peak and one, a rating of 1,000 as a world-class professional. So I got really close to being a world-class professional. I didn't quite get there. Um, and then other things took over my life. Gotcha. Well, you, I mean, across all the different things you're doing, I could see where time is tight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. one of the things, you know, when doing some research on you, I didn't see a ton of stuff around some of your international career, and yeah. I know well, it, it, it wasn't very long, right? I probably did a six, seven tournaments, something like that. So you know, it wasn't very long. Yeah, you did a shitload in November, uh, October, November of two thousand seven, like Sun Kiss, the tournament yeah. Canada, yep, um, NYAC. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and then obviously, uh, in addition to that, at that point. I mean, really, it's just getting to the point now where, you know, we watched Mateo Pelicone on Flow a couple weeks ago where um, that content is actually being broadcast. But, I mean, back then, it was not only was it not broadcast live, but you probably couldn't find uh, results, let alone watch <laughs> matches from it, unfortunately. Yeah, how, I mean, just before we get into that, I was listening to an interview you did with Jason Bryant in 2015, and you guys okay. were talking about how there was a low turnout at the World Trials in Madison or something. I don't know. No, it was it was terrible. Terrible. How yeah. far has wrestling come in just five years? It's unbelievable. 
Yeah, it's it, it's came so far, and I I think that's I think you know I think it's best evidenced by the two things last year. So number one, the uh, Ringer Dake, and then number two, uh, Yanni Zane. I mean, in the middle of Texas, in in what was it June or something, or I don't know, it was one of the summer months. I don't recall which one. I'm blanking. Um, but they put it might have been August. Who knows? They put two thousand people in a gym in, in Texas, right? And then uh, the, a couple weeks later. In Pennsylvania, there was they, two thousand fans showed up for one match. One match. <laughs> That's you know, it's like it's so fantastic. And so wrestling is finally understanding, learning how to market itself. It's going really well, um, and, and I, I love that. How much of it is social media and getting some real proficiency there versus? I mean, Flow's been around even back in twenty fifteen when we had those issues of turnout. So what's the what's kind of the turning point for you? Well, I mean, I, th- I think really the if flow helps immensely, right? Um, but e- it, from an ina- international basis, it was uh, not really widely broadcast. I mean, st- still, we can't watch all the tournaments, right? We couldn't watch the Uregan, which is one of the top tournaments. We couldn't watch that. That was just two weeks ago. So it's not like we can watch everything yet. We're, it's getting better. Uh, but from a collegiate standpoint, we can now view almost everything, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think it, um, it, everything helps everything else. And so when I'm able to flip on my phone and watch a few matches on Friday night, I'm more likely to be interested to then go watch a dual meet somewhere. I'm then more interested to be likely to go watch an NCAA tournament. If I end up going to an NCAA, then I'm more likely to get interested and watch a match on Flow the next year, right? So I think everything helps itself. And, you know, I, I've been touring, doing camps since probably 2003, and, and I remember, say, you know, in my era, 2007, if I mentioned a big name, nobody knew who that was. I mean, maybe just like the top one or two, right? Like literally one or two people. Mm-hmm. And now it's like I can walk into my club. To, I'm going to my club to coach practice tonight. Um, and I, if I say a match from last weekend, if I say RBY to Santo, they'll know. If I say Cameron Michael Hall, uh, Mark Hall, they'll know. Like, they know. Kids are watching. People are paying attention because of the access we have to it. Yeah, so it's access, and it's also... I mean, to your point, though, Flow, when, even when it was background, it took a while for them to get the rights. So now that they have the rights Correct, to all, yeah. the, all of the matches, I mean, you've never seen more Division One college wrestling. And I know, for you, when you talk about some of those pivotal moments of, of your kids watching high-level guys, for you, it was the 2000 yeah. Olympic trials. Um, wh- how old were you when you went to that, and what was... I guess what was so impactful about that event for you? Um, yeah, I, I let's see, what was so well? I was all the way into wrestling. I quit my freshman year. I quit football to wrestle all all year round, um, and I was just getting into wrestling at, at a really deep level. And there was a camp alongside it, and I convinced my parents to send me. And I went by myself, and I don't know. I watched those guys, and I said, "F that! I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an <laughs> Olympic team." And I realized 2004 would probably be too soon. That's uh. Uh, 2008 was probably the right time. And by 2000, had you already started doing the thing where you're working out, you had a pleasure workout every single day? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of an obsessive personality type. When did that start for you? Uh, to see. Well, I started getting more serious about wrestling in fifth grade. I quit football. I started getting really serious in like seventh, eighth grade about wrestling. Um, and you know what? I don't. I th- I don't know if it was like a thing. I think it just like like I said, I'm obsessive, and so I just started working out every day. And then it was like, okay, I work out every day. It's like, and I didn't see any reason not to keep working out every day. I, I enjoyed working <laughs> working out for the most part. So I just kept going. And then it was like, I don't know. At some point, I realized it was it was highly abnormal that most people don't train every single day. Uh, and then so then I realized it was working to my advantage if I trained every day and other people didn't train every day, then I could win more. So I figured I might as well just keep going. And what did, what did training mean for you back in those days? Was it working out in your basement alone? Was it running? What was it? Um, I hate running, so it was probably probably minimal amount of running. I love wrestling, so it was it was, it was a lot of wrestling, and obviously it was difficult in those days because uh, there weren't wrestling clubs that went year round. I mean, there was a spring club by me that went I think March, April, May for two twice a week or something, and so it was like going to recruit other people to come train with me um, in my basement and, you know, finding the right people. And that, that was kind of what it meant. Had the Steiners made the move to Wisconsin yet? They started their club. They were there, but they started their club, I believe, my senior year of high school. Okay. Yeah, so I didn't have, I was a member of that club. 
Um, I'm actually now, my brother and I just bought, are buying that club, and we're starting operations uh, in April. So it's come came for full circle. Yeah, the, are those the two locations you're opening up this spring here? That That's one of them. So obviously, we're not kind of starting them from scratch, but we are... Uh, we are buying that facility and, and kind of turning it into one of our own, and then we are we are opening a new facility south of Milwaukee, uh, in the town called Franklin. Got it. That's man, you guys yeah. are growing like crazy. I mean, are there yeah. other academies in Wisconsin? Because like in Chicago, you have overtime, Izzy style, yep. Poetas. Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, there there's a couple clubs in the Milwaukee area. There was two when we got here. They've kind of condensed into one club. Um, you know, there's one still that operates in Green Bay or, you know, kind of two that they're, they're all right. And then, you know, the, I guess the other big one would be a guy named who I went to high school with and friends with, Crass. Uh, he has kind of three facilities up in the northwest part of the state. They do a good job. What is it about your philosophy or I guess your yeah. I guess it would be your philosophy that that's unique because I've seen on your website you have something called the Pillars Program. I don't know if that's something that's detailed and structured that you have a plan for seven no, high school or yeah I, I so if i had to condense it all down to it's just that okay number one we actually really love wrestling and number two we try to do what's best for the kids um and and you know most people want success early and i think that 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 happens to have a lot of negative impacts and we can be patient with it we know if we just continue with our process um, over the course of time, we're not going to push kids early. We're not going to make them cut weight. We're not going to make them train hard when they're young. They, they will have success long term. Um, and so our retention rates are really high. We don't see a lot of burnout. I mean, I remember one time, Ryan, I was in Chicago. And this is, this is kind of this, – this anecdote will kind of go across a lot of the rest of the community. But we're at this tournament. And there's, there's one division that's 10 and under. And there's one division that's 14 and under, right? And there's this one team that has uh, – it has a team in the 10 and under but does not have a team in the 14 and under. And I remember the coach saying, yeah, we got we got 46 kids in our club and only three of them are above the age of 10. And me thinking like, holy crap, you idiot. Don't you realize that means you're burning them all out by the time they're 11? <laughs> like, duh. Like, is that not such a duh thing? Like, I, I would say our, our kids, you know, we have way more seventh and eighth graders than we do younger because once we get them in our room, they stick around, you know, and then more and more show up as they get older. Um so I think that's kind of a huge one that most people miss on. They try training their kids, try to make them too good too early, put too much emphasis on the early success, and and that leads to a lot of problems. And we just keep kids around. If I, I know if I just keep kids coming back over and over and over again, they are going to, in fact, get good over the course of time. I don't need to force it by the time they're in fifth or sixth grade. And when do you think it's okay for a kid to, you hear this all the time, to focus yeah. on one sport exclusively, assuming it's driven by the kid, not the parent? Yeah, um, I, I think I think my take on kids is that sometime between age 11 and 14, and every kid's different based on their emotional maturity, They the kid can start making choices on what, what they want to do with their life. For me, it was age 11, I decided I wanted to quit baseball, and my parents let me do it. At age uh, 14, I decided I wanted to quit football. And so you kind of see kids in that. Before that, they're very heavily influenced by what's around them, right? Whether it's older kids or parents or coaches, they're really, really heavily influenced. I think at the age of 11 to 14, somewhere in there, they start getting like a voice of their own and really be able to start speaking about, you know, what they want to do with their life. And so, you know, I've, I've also actually been heavily influenced by this book range by David Epstein lately. And so, um, I never push kids to quit wrestling or quit other sports in, in, in lieu of wrestling. Um, and so I always try to kind of stay out of decisions. I don't want to be the one that makes a decision or push the kids in the decision. And now, um, I think I'll even further stay out of that discussion yeah that's unless it's coming from the kid it, it could be kind of tricky because parents are using yes. kids like currency almost now either amongst their own yes. social circles or because yep. they think they're going to get some kind of scholarship or whatever it, it's kind of weird yeah. and i don't think it's uh specific to wrestling either is that i i don't think it, obviously it's the world i'm in but no um i'm actually i do some work with this guy Nick, who's got this thing called Reform Sports Parent. I don't know if you've seen him posting on Facebook, yeah. but it's crazy the amount of likes and uh, shares that a lot of his memes get. And I think it's because there's so much frustration built up around, around the way that you sports are. I mean, through his posts, like regularly get 2,000 shares. And I, I know you're on Facebook. Getting 2,000 shares is so freaking abnormal. <laughs> I mean, it just it doesn't happen. So obviously, the things that he's putting up there and the things that he's saying are resonating heavily with 
um, the people reading it. 100%. I, I was actually going to ask you, is that like your company behind the scenes? Because you're featured in a ton of that shit. Yeah, it's not my company. I kind of like just started talking to the guy kind of early, early when he was just right starting, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, He's really sharp, and it's it's a topic I'm really passionate about. It's something like if I had enough time, I would go do all the shit he's doing, but I don't have time. So the fact that he's doing it so well, and he's kind of like him and I are really operating on the same wavelength. So it's obviously I share a lot of stuff he does because I agree wholeheartedly with it. Well, I mean, obviously there's a market for it because the traction it gets there, well, but it's, also. It's no, but, it, but it's super hard to find the market because here, here's the thing, and this is what I told him. It's like I support your message and motive. I don't know how you're ever going to make money off of it because everything that you're doing is taking money away from other people. If you're saying little kids don't go to national tournaments because they're worthless, that's taking money out of those tournament directors' pockets, right? So there's not really a, a monetary incentive to do so, whereas the, the tournament director has a monetary incentive to get kids to go to his tournament to make them think the trophy's really cool or it'll be really important or it's going to help him somehow if he wins, right? Same thing with clubs, right? I mean – Club coaches have huge incentive to push kids early to do, make them do more privates to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to make more money. And so to say, oh, that that coach, he's full of crap. Um, that you know, again, is a negative financial thing. So I don't know how he's gonna make money off it. I do wholeheartedly agree with his mission statement, but I think it is kind of a hard thing because he's taking money out of other people's pockets and saying, hey, listen, just let your effing kid go play in the backyard. That's probably gonna be just as beneficial to them as going to something else, like. That is a really hard sell for parents. The other thing is most parents aren't super educated in this type of thing. And so, listen, if I train a seven, if I, if you give me say, Ben, I want you to do this. I want you to go take every seven-year-old year in club, which our seven-year-olds right now, we only practice one day a week for an hour. And that's it. It's very low key. Instead of doing that, I want you to train them really hard three times a week. Listen, those seven-year-olds are going to get pretty good pretty fast, right? But I think it's, it's a long-term negative towards most of it, right? Some of them will be fine and benefit long-term. The majority of them will say, this sucks, I don't like it, I quit, okay? And so, but, so when you see a, a kid, uh, uh, an uneducated parent sees a coach pushing a kid young and they have a couple, handful of, I'll, F it, I'll say it, that Gomez Wrestling Club uh, that was in Chicago. Oh, I know those um, guys, yeah. They always had a bunch of killer little eight, nine, 10-year-olds and then where were they when they got to high school? I didn't see them then, right? And so, um, but an uneducated parent will say, wow, I want my seven-year-old to be a state champ. I'm going to send him there, right? Because they don't, they don't see the long-term progression and what's going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, I think the thing you said is uneducated parents. Most of the guys who were competitive at something at a somewhat high level like yourself or you know, any Division One parent, they seem to have it understood, but that's not the majority yeah. of kids wrestling. Um, Abs absolutely not, yeah. Maybe your uh, maybe your buddy can like camp outside your facility and do like a coach's practice while the kids are in there practicing. <laughs> uh, I mean, I yeah, I, 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 I hope his message gets really you know distributed from a or to a wide basis because he has a point, and I think there are more and more people um, coming along these lines that see the damage it's doing. And actually, you know what it really is is it, it's a psychological epidemic uh, where it's really having negative impact on kids at a young age because what they're doing they're they're tying their results in athletics to their, to their self-worth and parents are enabling that behavior. And so, um, I think that will become the, uh, a really big talking point or of this. Yeah. And that's something where, I mean, you've been involved with sports psychology for a long time. Um, yes. and so this is all relevant to you just based on what you've studied in college. When did you conduct the study of former NCAA champs? That was 2006, seven. We tried. So I, I got, I think 120 responses at that point. Um, we wrote a book, me and a lady named me, and, uh, her name is Renee Mapes. She's a PhD in sports psych, and it just wasn't that great, so we didn't ever put it out. What were some of the findings? I mean, it's pretty cool to hear from 125 NCAA yeah. champs. Was there anything that really jumped out? Um, let's see. Well, the number one, the number one was this, and it wasn't even, wasn't even something we intended to gather. Um, we asked the question, when did you go from good to great? Because I always think there's a turning point at some point in people's lives where they, you know, it's either they fully start believing themselves or maybe they, they start getting coached by someone who gets them to believe in themselves, right? There's something that enables them to go from where they are to further. Um, I think you can kind of see that inflection point in a lot of people's careers. Some, some people it's earlier than later, right? Um, so we, I was kind of looking for something around that inflection point. And what I got back was, 
a whole bunch of people who said, I was never great. This question assumed I was great. This guy was great, but I was never great. And so you have all of these NCAA champions, which, you know, obviously greatness can't really be quantified. But if you want to take NCAA champions, we're talking about the point, top 0.001%. So if you if you do quantify greatness, these people all have to be included for sure, right? Um, and they're all saying, I am not great when, in fact, they actually are great. Um and what that made me think of was that these people never viewed themselves in that light, and I think that's really important. And so I tied that into like a beginner's mind philosophy. Well, once kids get to that point where they think, I'm good enough, I know everything, I don't have to get any better, that then they, then they go from here and they start going here or possibly here. Um, whereas these people who never thought they were great when they're really great. And at that point, 2006, it's like, well, I, I guess, okay, well, if I'm going to apply that standard to these people, I'm great because I've won an NCAA title and now going on two. Um, but I never thought of myself that way. I just thought, hey, I'm going to go in, I'm going to get better, and I'm going to keep trying to get better, and that's all I really ever thought about. So I think that's that's like probably the thing that was the most interesting um, that I did that I didn't really even anticipate. I guess the other thing, and I, and I won't out this person, um, there was obviously a heavy amount of self-belief, which you would you would think that you would find within a group of NCAA champions. But what I came to believe or realize from this is this belief doesn't always have to be equated to reality. Hmm. And so what I mean by that is uh, I'm going to give you two examples. There was two people, both NCAA champions. One of them said, I trained year round because that's what I had to do to be an NCAA champion. The other one said, I had to take two months off because I needed my mind to have the break to be an NCAA champion, right? So we're dealing with two statements, which are both reality. They both did become NCAA champions which both their training habits differed, right? One said, I, I had to train you around. The other said, I had to take the time off, okay? And then, so finally, then, and I was really struggling with that. And then I get this one from this guy who's an NCAA champion. And again, I'm not gonna tell you who it was, but I, I can tell you, I, I, I knew the guy fairly well, and I know he's full of crap. He said, I was the most athletic guy in my class, that was why I won an NCAA champion. I'm like, bro, you are not athletic, come <laughs> on. You're full of crap. And so, but damn if he didn't write it, and he believed it. And then, you know, when I thought about the guy, I'm like, as crazy as it seems, this dude believes this is dude believes what he's writing right now. And that was what led me to. It's like, okay, this some of this self-belief is not tied into reality, which then led me to then, okay, now I'm going off. Your thesis on Dan Gable. One of the reasons Dan Gable was so great at what he did he, is he was able to get all of these guys to believe that their conditioning was better than everyone else's, and that was why they were going to win. And here's the fan, you want to know what the fantastic thing about this is, Ryan? Hit me. You can't disprove that statement. You can't disprove it. You cannot, at the end, you cannot quantify at the end of seven minutes and say, he is 72% tired, and you're only 68% <laughs> tired. You're in better shape than he is, Right. The Iowa guy's tired as shit. He comes over to the sideline. Gable says, look at the other guy. He's more tired than you are. And the Iowa guy goes, damn straight he is. <laughs> right? It's, it's an unquantifiable thing. And therefore, you can never, you can never disprove it. Right. Okay? Unless, obviously, unless the guy gets so tired he falls over, which because they're in pretty good shape, that never happens. It may happen to a few other guys. And then, obviously, then you probably prop that one example up as other people getting tired. But... It is very, very difficult to disprove the sentiment that um, you are less tired or more tired than the other person at the end of seven minutes. And think about the impact that had on youth wrestling for years and years I, I and years. I hate it. I hate it. I actually hate it. So let's get to, to something I know you're passionate about. Obviously, uh, everyone in wrestling is a fan of Kale Sanderson for what he's done. Yes. Yes. Is he too Bill Belichick like? Is he too? Uh... Well, I, I mean, it's just it's just to what you mentioned. Uh, I wish that Kale would have more influence because of the amount of influence Gable had. Right. Gable had every every coach wanting to grind their kids into the ground, and it's like you don't need to do that at seven years old or eight years old or nine years old or ten years old, right? Right. Maybe at twelve, thirteen, fourteen. And the other thing is, if you take a kid who's never ever wrestled, first day he has. He has no vested vested interest in the sport of wrestling whatsoever, and you grind him, and he thinks, "Shit, that sucked. I'm not coming. <laughs> I, I'm not coming back tomorrow, right? Or maybe you do it after a month. I'm not coming back." Now you put this kid in this this two or three or four years, and he has a vested interest, and he likes wrestling. And he's been doing, and you make him do something that he doesn't like or that's really tough, and he's gonna say, "Listen, he has he has something now invested into the sport." 
which is going to when when things get to that point, because, you know, it's like when you push a kid past the point that he's been before, they don't like it. Mm -hmm. They never do. Right. And nor, nor do you. If I went and pushed you with something you've never done, you're not going to like it. Fair. But if you have a tie to it, if there's something that you've invested, you're much less likely to give up. And so when coaches try to push these kids right away, it's the dumbest thing that they can do because that kid has nothing invested. And so, you know, when we talk about our system, I am going to ask some of these eighth graders and high school kids to grind it out. I am going to ask them to cut some weight sometimes. I am going to ask them to do stuff that is difficult and tough, okay? Mm -hmm. But by the time I'm asking them to do that, they're well invested in the sport and they know they want to be good at it. And so most of the time, not every time, most of the time, they're going to follow through because of the investment they already have. So you're saying there's a balance between when you weave that into the training and not. Because obviously that that Gable style worked. I mean, I just, I had Mark Ironside on last week. You know, he beat Colat and you think Colat, way more technical, but just for whatever reason that style was able to grind him down in that match in that all-star yeah. meet in 96. Well, yeah. C- conditioning is a weapon, obviously, right? Conditioning can be a factor. Um, now in wrestling, because people understand, I mean, when Gable, when Gable was doing that, obviously training methods weren't nearly as up to date as they are today. Right. Now you don't see a lot of conditioning. Doesn't win a lot. It doesn't win matches. Sure. Right. Does it win the amount of matches it did 30 years ago? And the answer to that's no. no. And that's why, you know, the next, the next evolution was kale and what he's doing with technique. And you see, um, guys, I mean, the, the, the five guys you know, who had who were probably all-timers, uh, Taylor, Ruth, Nickel, Zane, uh, and Nolf, all five of those guys are, are probably all-time type guys, whatever, whatever way you want to qualify it, whether it was by NCAA titles, uh, points scored at the NCAA tournament, however you want to qualify it. Could those guys win matches by conditioning? Yes, they could, right? Did they win a lot of matches by conditioning? The answer to that is no. Right, they won a lot of matches because they were just better wrestlers than the other person, and so I think that's really in 2019. You don't, you can't win a lot of matches just by wearing people out. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's more fun to watch the other style. Like those guys, like I kind of think of them as you know, I'm I'm an Iowa fan, so I kind of think of them as Iowa style wrestlers. They're scoring all the time. Granted, they also have the element of scrambling added into it. Um, well, it's the the element. I mean, scrambling to me isn't isn't something. Um, different right it's just wrestling so what those guys have the ability to is wrestle at all times whereas if you have a guy who can't scramble he always gets to that point where he has to stop right okay i can't go past here because either i'm scared of it or i don't know what i'm doing when when you're comfortable everywhere like uh, you think of any of those other guys i named they're comfortable everywhere they'll just they'll just keep wrestling so they have the ability to wrestle from any position for all seven minutes yeah no question about it and one of the things I want to ask you with respect to you know, scrambling or, or funk or whatever you call it, I mean, you know, Mike Ironman calls it wrestling, looks like wrestling to me. You talk about in the Flow documentary how your senior year, you were very deep with this shit, like eight, nine level, yeah. eight, nine moves yeah, in yeah. advance. Uh-huh. Do you think anyone has gotten to that level of proficiency since then or has it been far surpassed? Oh, whew, that's a good question. So that level meaning that far past everyone else in that thing, or that level meaning that's where that they, level of mastery at. with that particular skill set of wrestling that was so unique to you. Has anyone yeah. gotten to that uh, level since? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's far more pervasive, right? A lot of people do it, um, and I think there's been uh, absolutely some of the Penn State guys have made evolutions on some of the things that I did. But what still does blow me away is the amount of people who still. Um, I mean, I just brought one up. Last week, Mikey Labriola loses to Michael Kemmerer on a leg pass, and then Mikey Labriola beats Caleb Romero on a leg pass. Like the fact that that those guys on the shooting side, which was Mike Labriola in one case and Caleb Romero on the other side, don't understand the simple defense to a leg pass is mind blowing. They lost matches because that that's simple shit. That that's scrambling. Maybe not one oh one, but we'll say one oh two. It's definitely not higher level scrambling. And so um, you know, Yes, there are people that are at that level, but the amount of people who still don't understand the basics kind of blows me away. Like what level of grade, what level of wrestler would know that at your club? Is that middle school or is that high school shit or is that elementary? Oh, no. no. I, so Max and I actually argue about this one a lot. I tend to not teach too much scrambling till older, when they're older, high school age. At the younger ages, I just, I think um, you have to build the pyramid, right? So the pyramid goes like this. And I think scrambling's up here. Okay. So I don't think I don't think you build this part till you build the foundations. Um, 
And Max would disagree with that. Max would start teaching some of the stuff early on. And so, yeah, it's obviously, you know, we grew up in the same systems all the way through. And it's a point that we still kind of differ on. Um, so, you know, there, there's multiple ways to skin a cat. There's obviously some people who win national titles who still don't scramble at all. Um, so it, it is obviously possible. Um, so I, I would start teaching that stuff uh, a little bit later on. I don't really actually think the leg pass is that good of a scramble. I think it's kind of like the 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 worst of all of the scrambles, in my opinion. Really? Why is that? It's it's easily defended. Um, you can't score more than two points off of it, generally speaking. Um, I just think there's much better much better options if you know what you're doing. So if someone went to the Askren Academy, one went to your brother's, one went to yours, are they on the same plan and progression over like a multi-year period? Or is it like how much cohesion there's, is there? There's a, I would say like 80 to 90% the same. And then there's those areas that we differ on, right? And, you know, it's going to be like, he's going to teach some of this stuff when they're in fifth or sixth grade. And I'm going to teach that same thing a little bit later on. I might spend a, a few more minutes on down block go-behinds or sprawling at a younger age where he, you know, he goes to a far ankle. And so, you know, uh, under the roof, there's all the same stuff. It's just like when you teach it, maybe it's not exactly at the same time type of stuff. Okay. Now, before we get back to your competitive career, I do want to hit on one thing. If you were a Division One head coach, I know you interviewed for the Wisconsin job. Obviously, you're yeah. 18th qualified to do so. What is like two or three things you're seeing now that really bother you or that you would change if you were a D1 coach of a, of a top-tier, top-tier yeah. program? So I, w- I don't think I'll ever be a Division One coach again. Um, you know, the only places I would ever even con- even slightly consider would be Wisconsin or Missouri. Um, now that I have three kids and my my mom lives down the street, I I just don't think I, I would ever make the move. Plus, we have, I really love the AWA stuff. I'm having a lot of success. I know if you flip me, if you just said you kidnapped me, you put me in the thing and made me coach in Missouri, I'm sure I would love that too. Yeah, right? I get that. Um, Nevertheless, the roots are growing here. It's, it would be hard for me to move. Um, I think, and I, this is so. This is a little bit of a blind stab because I don't know exactly what Kale's doing. I think I have a good feel for what Kale's doing, even though he won't come out and talk about it. So I think I would spend a lot of time sparring and drilling because you know hard work only gets you so far. You can only be so good a shape. And I think you know when we talk about those guys I mentioned from Penn State earlier. One of the reasons they're, they got to be so much better is because they can wrestle in all positions. So I would get kids comfortable and confident in a lot of those scramble positions because there's just no way to avoid the scrambling. I mean, you can kind of beat it sometimes, but you know when you talk about the, the team who's most against the Iowa, Kemmer, he can scramble pretty damn well. Right. Spencer Lee, he can scramble pretty well. Even the Santos had some pretty good scrambles against Seth Gross this year. So, um you know, you can only deny that that scrambling is a necessary part of wrestling for so long, and then at some point you just have to embrace it. So I would get guys really comfortable and really proficient within those situations. I think that's a huge one um, that some people are missing on. What about open tournaments at the beginning of the year? Are you doing more of the invitational style, or are you going to keep rolling with the opens? Yeah, I, I would have to. Obviously, I've never been forced to do it. I would have to test it out for myself. I think I would run – I think I would run a few different simulations over the course of a few years, iterations, right, seeing what works. I, I I don't really love that people are doing so few matches. I feel like everyone's getting like 25 to 30 matches. Something about it says that's just not the right way to go about it for me. Um, maybe for some people it is. And so I would have to kind of study that right study my team under 40 matches see how they do study my team when we travel see how they do maybe maybe i wouldn't travel so much um you know i, I think there's a bunch of different ways to kind of look at it um and i i don't want to comment because yeah. i haven't done it and one of the things that drives me crazy in life is people who talk about something before they've done it right there's a lot of these idiots on instagram and facebook they say i'm an expert at this and it's like well, what are your qualifications well yeah you you have done so shut up Right. Um, and so, you know, without say, without actually going through the process of running a college wrestling team, I kind of have guesses on what I would do with the schedule, but I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, in, in, but you've been a coach, though. You know, it's not like you have, I have yeah. at Arizona State. Yeah. I mean, but part of the argument, like, you know, with today's guys, they need less matches because they've had more matches when they're younger and they're more ready to compete. And so I, th- I do think, in fact, that competition in itself is a skill. I absolutely think that. I hold that to be true. Um, 
you know, so it's like, okay, maybe I got one guy who's a great competitor who doesn't need 40 matches, who he, you know, he, he just shows up every single time. He's got his process down. But maybe I have a couple of freshmen who don't have that process down, who panic in the big matches, who don't understand how to compete really. So maybe they do need 40 matches. And maybe they need critiqued in and out of matches, and they need that practice. So, you know, again, without kind of going through that process to figure out what's better, uh, you know, it, it's hard to comment because there is not a, a great consensus on what is correct and what's false. So do you think people have moved away from that national duels tournament because of wear and tear or just because... I, mean, I don't even know why they went away from it. I used to love that tournament, and I remember the year you were supposed to wrestle Mark Perry there. That didn't yeah. happen. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, like, would you I, do the yeah. duels? I well, in my ideal scenario, if I was in charge, I'd have a, a, a double national championship. I'd have one part duel season and one part tournament season. Let's go. Let's I, go. I think that would be so much fun. I think we'd see more moving around, you know, jockeying of lineups because of the you know weight certification rules wouldn't be that necessary because the tournaments weren't in place. So I think I think that would probably be the ideal scenario for wrestling. I mean. Um, obviously the NCAA tournament is as awesome as it gets, but then when you see a duel like on Friday night and re really there's many teams who are doing a great job at filling up their duel mates in 2019, 2020. So I, I think, I think the duel thing would be a lot of fun. I don't know that it's going to happen though. And is it true that you kept that, that article referencing what Mark Perry said for a whole summer up until the national duels and you guys didn't get to scrap after all, or is that, I, I want to say. Uh, no, I mean, I know, I know I, it was, it was up here. I don't know if I had a physical thing of it and he said, he got scrambled me. Let's bring it then. That's what <laughs> I was just talking to you about. Uh, I don't like, I don't like people who talk about stuff without actually having gone and done it. Um, okay. You can say it. Let's go. Right. And it never happened, right? Well, he sat on the bench. Mm, I like Mark. It. So I don't want, I don't want to say too very, too many mean things. No, no, not at all. I mean, he, when okay. I was a, when he was a freshman and came out of red shirt and won the Midlands, I was huge fan of that guy because i'm like i said an illinois guy so midlands was huge so i, I did want to hit on like we said the international career a little bit so your senior year you wrestle at 174 and yep. then you cut down to 163 and i've heard you talk oh. a lot this year about how gross at this point he should have already made up his mind where he's going to go is he going to be you know a big 33 or is he going to try and make the olympic weight and kind of yeah. slowly descend where were you at on that were you thinking that far ahead um, like, were you descending I, down? I, I had one more year to my Olympic year. I was staying a little smaller than I had the previous years. Um, but we also had the day before, which I think that, that is a game change, right? That, that becomes not totally a body size issue, but a lot about a water weight cut, right? How much can you water weight cut? And then you can come back by usually the next day. And so actually the first couple times I made 74 kg, it was really hard on my body and I, I struggled. I, I thought it would be easier than it was. Um, luckily that was 2007, not 2008. So then by, you know, by that next fall, I had kind of figured it out, you know, exactly where I need to be and how I was going to do it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. when you look at that year, you, at the U S open in 2007, you came out, made the semis against Heskett. We're in an absolute scrap with him end up losing yep. a tight one, end up getting six at the U S open. What did you change? Or yeah, as you look to the trials later that yeah. summer, and then some of those tournaments in the fall. What were some of the biggest things you changed? Well, I took fifth at the trials. I think I, I don't think I actually wrestled the fifth place match at the U.S. Open. I could, I could be wrong. I know I was if if I can't I remember <laughs> I can remember where I was at. Um, I, I had a freaking Donnie effing poked me in the eye and headbutted me, and then my ankle <laughs> got twisted. I was all jacked up, and then the weight cut. Like I said, the weight cut was having a heavy impact on me. Um, and so the getting the weight in order was uh, a really important thing. And then also uh, there's a few technical changes I, I needed to make um, that allowed me to to have success that next year. And at this point in your career, I know you're working out twice a day. I've read about that. What do the workouts look like for you? Like when you're at your absolute peak of wrestling at this point? Um, I mean, uh, there wasn't a lot of lifting, right? Because I had to get small for 74. So it was just like, maintenance lifts not, nothing very heavy um and then uh i, I it was just one really usually one really technical practice a day um and then you know maybe one time where I, I was going really hard every day i didn't think that was necessary at that point in my life i knew how to go hard um for me it was about getting more proficient in the in the situations that i i felt were going to um help me win or lose matches but man, I mean, you made some crazy jumps just just in that yeah. short of time. I guess if you look at the results, you know, sixth is a little misleading if you injury defaulted for fifth. Um, but still, it's like even at the Sunkiss Kids tournament, you lost, you got fourth there, and 
you know, drop two to guys who you'd later, I don't know if you'd wrestle Lackey again, but, you know, Paulson was one of the guys you were battling that. I mean, you made some crazy jumps. It was yeah, just. But that, ma- but that match was bullshit. That match, I won the first period 7 0, and I lost the last two 1 to 1. I mean, Fuck. like, <laughs> think about the stupidity of that, right? Those rules. Um, so, yeah, those rules are terrible. Uh, but that was kind of that was kind of where I made my I made my big jump after that tournament. I think I then I then won the Canada one. I won the NYC, and after that I, I was kind of rolling. That was the last one where, um, you know, I was still kind of getting the process I needed to figure it out. Got it. Okay, and so you yeah. you won the U.S. Open, and you know we're. We're getting really close to the trials this year. The last thing I want to ask you about your career is, you know, after you've won the U.S. Open and you know you got to buy to the finals, which it's a lot different. No, now. we didn't. We did not. You did it? I did not. No. Uh, that at that point, I think it was only world medalists had to buy. I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I, th- I think that is the case. So you? Yeah. So I wrestled. I had first round. I had Donnie. Second round, I had Ramiko, and then in the fi- best two three finals, I had Tyron Lewis. Got I it. was the one seed. Yes. Okay. Now, would you say in those type of high-pressure situations, I mean, the match with Lewis, Olympics is on the line, it's been your dream since 2000, would you say, yeah. which of the hypocritical athletes would you say you are? Would you say you're the planner, or? No, you got to be both. Got to be my, both. My, my, my argument is you need to utilize the best characteristics of both people. That's my, that's my whole argument. And for the and uh, mo- most, most people don't understand how to do that. So for the listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, I've listened to probably every T-Row and Funky show you've ever done. Uh, I was heartbroken when that went off air. And I love the story that you told DC about Johnny Hendricks and John Smith in a pool hall. Um, my brother and I, ah. <laughs> we still laugh about that to it's this po- day. It's, po- it's possible. It's Possibly possible. true. We don't know. Um, we don't know for sure. But I've heard you talk about the hypocrit- hypocritical athlete a lot on there. For those people who have no idea what, yeah. what the hell we're talking about, what is it? And you know, what do you mean by kind of merging both sides of that? I'm, I'm eventually going to get someone to write the book. Um, so th- there's all these qualities of, that makes someone good at something. And my beef with sports psych books is they, they, they don't correctly outline the interplay between characteristics. And so, um, sorry, I'm pulling up my lit. I, I have this saved on my Google drive. So I'm going to pull this up just so pull it up. Uh, I can, I can, I can throw a few at you. Um, so in this case, what you would be, what you would be referencing. Um, and this, so there's all these characteristics that balance each other, in my opinion, you're talking about the the lowest preparation slash gunslinger. So uh, I would say it like this. We all know that kid who um, he sleeps right, he eats right, he trains right, he does everything right, and that probably helps him be good. And you would say, yeah, that's true. Is that fair? Fair. Okay. We would also say, hey, I know that guy who does everything wrong, and then somehow he just shows up and he competes really well. That is probably important to being good, right? Yeah, just lets it rip. Uh, just lets it rip. A lot of people are kind of jealous of that person, right? But that's a that's a positive mental characteristic that he proposes. Now, most people can only do one of these two things. Most gunslingers, if you make them do everything right, that will create a sense of anxiety within them, right? Yep. And they'll actually they'll actually lose a little bit of that gun gunslingerness, if we want to call it. <laughs> most guys who love preparation. If they get crappy sleep the night before and the weight cut goes wrong, they will then build up anxiety. They will compete poorly. Okay? So what our ideal athlete, what our ideal athlete would be, and we can do many different characteristics, but this is one of them. Someone who does every single thing right, but then when everything goes wrong, it doesn't effing matter. They just show up and scrap. And so most of the times you cannot find both those characteristics within one person because most people lean one way or they lean the other way. And so – um, you know, you're balancing both sides of this, and these are two characteristics that have this significant interplay with each other, and most people don't realize how they, how they go together. And do you think there's a higher percentage of winners who are the planners or the gunslingers for the ones who haven't merged yet? I, I think the best of the best of the best um, do both, right. have, have an aspect of both. I would say probably generally speaking that uh the the first one is more likely you know they they do have they train right and they do everything right a lot of those kids a lot of the people who are in the second category uh, exclusively where um you know they don't they say you know what i'm talking about older people right so college kids they party a lot they don't eat very good and they show up. 
most of those kids are the ones who've been burnt as little kids, right? Who they had, they made their train their ass off as little kids. So their skills are really good, but they lack the motivation to do everything else right because they don't want to be there anymore. Um, I mean, one of those right now we see is, is, and I don't know what his early life was like, but like Joe Smith, you right. know, I mean, he's kind of at that point where, hell, sometimes he can show up and let it rip, and sometimes it's like, oh, my God, this is a train wreck. Right. Would you put uh, Jacob Warner in that category, too? He's not related uh, to me. He's just so yeah. such a I, question I mark to me. I don't know Jacob well enough to comment. Um, yeah, I, I think, actually, just from the vibe I get, it would probably be a different category. I think he does things right. I think he really wants to be good at wrestling, and I think he's struggling to get out of his own way mentally. Um, meaning he likely builds things up to be more than they are. And he can't not do that. He can't figure out how to not do that. Right. And so he builds up all this anxiety within himself and anxiety is, is physically and mentally draining to someone. And that's what happens to him. So do you think all that shit's coachable or some things just inherently cannot be fixed? Uh, I I think people inherently lean, lean certain directions. And when I see, when I, when I say inherent, I don't mean genetics from birth i also mean the way that you were raised as a little kid i actually i just talked with the wrestling mindset people yesterday for my mental monday and his thesis was how perfectionists deal with competition and they were talking about how when parents talk about competition to perfectionists it's neg- negatively correlated to uh performance and positively correlated with anxiety and stress so say it again so, so it's negatively correlated with performance so, okay so a, a perfect a kid who's a perfectionist the more his parents talks about an upcoming event, the worse, the more it affects his performance negatively. The more it makes his anxiety and stress go up, right? And anxiety and stress are negatively correlated with competition. Right. Okay. So the more anxiety and stress we have, the worse we compete generally. Well, it's interesting that you know I've interviewed. You're the 97th person. Almost, oh my goodness! Why didn't you save me for 100? This is a bunch of crap. I know, right? But most people, I can't tell you how many guys I've had on and girls. Who said their parents were indifferent to their results most of their career? That, that's that's what you need your parent to be. That That is an ideal scenario. But why doesn't everyone, I mean, not everyone, but why do people not realize that? I mean, do they just don't know or they're just... They, they don't know. They're not educated. They don't think about it a lot. And they, and then on top of that, they lots of them probably can't control their own behavior. That's it. Self-control. Interesting. Yeah. But a lot, a lot of it is... Oh, and, and so I don't want to be a dick to parents, but I actually, from, I've run a wrestling club for eight, eight and a half years now. I think almost all, um, almost all parents want the best for their kid. Most of them just don't really know how to give it to them, right? right? They're un, uneducated on high level performance. Um, and, and that, that's what leads to those behaviors. That's a good point. Yeah. I don't think any parents are out there wanting to get their kid amped up so they yeah. lose most people don't trying, want that no no not many kids no not many people are trying to sabotage their kids no not at all they'd be a real sociopath if they were absolutely now <laughs> um ben i do appreciate the time i know you you do podcasts all week long so i won't keep it too long here Obviously, so many podcasts how many are you freaking doing right now i got uh rudis rudis three wrestlings funky and frb and a crypto funky crypto so six actually who do you do the MMA one with? A guy named Front Row Brian. Front Row Brian. Okay. I've not listened to that one yet, but I see the audiograms. It's, it's, it's on Rockfin Network. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we don't have any sponsors. We just get on there and we talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about. And that's a good way to wrap this down because this is going to be the yeah. first episode on Rockfin. Ben, obviously you are all things crypto just from afar. I, that's what I, I think of you as kind of like the, the guy who's uh, all I, in yeah. on that. Ah! I do think it is the future, yes. So what what is Rockfin? Why are you excited about it? And why would wrestling fans have any interest in going there? Well, there, there's a lot of wrestling content on, on Rockfin, um, right? And so I... Uh, how'd you, I how'd actually, you get involved with them? Uh, Martin Floriani started it, right? He's the, he was... Uh, we've been friends forever. Okay. Um, he pitched me on it, and that's kind of how I got started. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm welcome to the network, obviously. Um, but I just, I think the model he's built for compensation for creators is really nice. I think there's there, he, I, he's correctly identified a few problems with, um, content creation and content aggregation. So what I mean by that, right, is there's content created, whether it's a, a wrestling match, right? And someone films it or a podcast or a written article or whatever. There's content is created. Then content is then aggregated by someone, right? YouTube would be the biggest one of all content aggregators. They aggregate music, 
sports, everything. Once the content aggregator gets big enough, they can put undue pressure on the creators to accept less monetary compensation than is probably fair, right? Because their network has so much value, they can say, here's what you're going to, and they do this, here's what you're going to take and you're going to like it, deal with it, okay? Um, additionally, the first thousand creators, without the first thousand creators, if YouTube never had a first thousand creators, YouTube would be worth zero. Is that fair? Fair. The first thousand creators share in none of the value of the network, okay? And so YouTube, I, th I believe it said that $15 billion in ad revenue last year, the first thousand creators share none of the value of that network. Whereas in Rockfin, you get tokens. You can obviously ex exchange your token for a dollar right away, or you can save it if you feel like the value of the network is going to go up. Um, and so then, you know, long term, you share the creators then share in the value of the network that they're that they are building. Right? YouTube didn't build that network without the creators. It was a symbiotic effort by both sides. So there's no value to being one of the first one thousand YouTube creators versus the millionth YouTube creator. There's no difference in value at this point in time. Um, well, no, there's a lot of value, and there's a lot of value in being one of the first, right? And, and that's the same. Oh, yeah. So you're saying if you're on YouTube right now, right? If you're on YouTube, yeah. Correct. Even though, even though number one or two or three or number four brought a lot more value to YouTube, right? Because right. they never get started without those first couple. Um, but yes, now the number one and number five million get treated the exact same. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got mm -hmm. it. So that's what Rockfin's about. It's been around. Seems like almost a year better part of a year uh i believe it was april last year april of last year and my understanding exactly. is that for a monthly subscription you get access to all the content on there everything uh, including yourself jordan burrows folks in the chicago area izzy styles on there so that's yep. where this podcast will be um and i think that does it ben asker any any parting okay. words here as we said no this? that that was fun we got to talk about a lot of things that i'm passionate about whether it's scrambling or youth wrestling coaching or uh, psychology of performance, um, youth wrestling burnout. We, we talked about a lot of topics, so I appreciate you having me on. Um, I hope you enjoy your time on the Rockfin Network. I, I think it's really, you know, when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, they are, the reason anything succeeds, scrambly included, is because it is better than whatever came before it, right? So when I said, okay, someone shoots a sing-along on me, I can do this or I can do that. Oh, that's better. I'm going to do that, right? And then it constantly evolves. I think Rockfin is a significant upgrade from everything that came before it. Love it. Great way to sign off. Ben Askren, you're awesome. Thank you, sir. All right. Appreciate it, man. Have a good day. Take care. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, text WRESTLE to 555-888. That's WRESTLE to 555-888. You can also find us on Instagram, Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner, as well as our website, wrestlingchangemylife.com. Take care, y'all.